HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Itoen, the leading green tea company and makers of Oi Ocha, Japan's number one selling green tea. For more information, visit itoen.com. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And I'm Mary Izette. From Fomentabari. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes, if you in fact like it, uh, and reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Joining me in the studio today is Michael Chirino, director and mastermind of A Razor, A Shiny Knife, uh, which is a creative experience design firm based here in Brooklyn. They specialize in the future of food and beverage and have produced everything you can imagine and a lot of things you can't uh, in the food and beverage space. They did a dinner on the L train, which we'll hopefully talk a little bit about later. Uh, they did the world's largest live Monopoly game in Panama and a pizza party that included a pie from every pizzeria in New York. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Harry. Um, so, Michael, you and I have, have known each other for a number of years. We met through our dogs. It's uh, been a be- better part of a decade at, the, at this More, moment. Probably, yeah, at yeah. least. Um, and over that time, I, I feel like I've, I've watched you um, create all sorts of these, you know, what some people would call crazy things, right? They, you know, if, if someone came to me and said, oh, yeah, we'd like to serve a multi-course, um, you know, sort of fine dining experience on this New York subway. Like, how would you sort of do that? I would say, well, I don't think you can, um, but you guys, you guys did it. And that's sort of the thing you do, right? Is it a razor, a shiny knife? Yeah. We, we say we like to create, or I, I guess the best way to explain it is from an artistic point of view, uh, I believe my art is logistics management and, uh, my passion is making what seem like impossible problems, uh, and then solving them in elegant ways. So the idea here is that any creative function, um, whether it be painting, architecture, uh, theater, uh, video production, 
requires logistics to make sure that the creative force can have access to the materials that they need and then to allow that to be then consumed by a general public. So we specialize in pushing the boundaries of what normally seems like boring, that foundation underneath the creative ventures, so that we can then spend the, the, that creative time completely free and devoid of the nervousness of can we do anything. Um, we can pretty much do anything. Now it's like how do we make that even better? How do we think about those details and focus them in a, in a more unique and interesting way for that, that specific experience or with the collaborators that we're working with? And when you create these experiences and when you collaborate with folks, is it is it something that you, I mean, do you have like a divine idea in the shower one morning and you're like, oh, we're going to do this. And then you like figure out how to do it in the next week. Do people come to you with the beginnings of ideas and you sort of mold them? How does, how does the process work? Ideally, it's both. Um, I find that uh, my creative process is greatly accelerated by meeting other inspired people. Um, so, uh, you know, when, when we were thinking about... Um, you know, the pizza party is a good example. Um, we are now known as people that you call when you have impossible problems. So somebody called me up and said the uh, 125th anniversary of the founding of pizza as we know it, you know, pizza, tomato sauce, and basil uh, is uh, Wednesday, which is this is actually the Thursday before. We'd like to order a pizza from every pizzeria in Manhattan. We imagine you to be the only person that can do that. Do you think that that's possible? And I was like, yes, it's possible. And they were like, and how do we go about doing that? And I was like, I think you need to give me $50,000 and at least two days notice because I'm going to have to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Monday morning, somebody wrote us a check for 50 grand. We hired 100 people. Those 100 people ran all over the city. I'm, I'm not saying we made a ton of money, but we spent sure. all of that money <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> making a pizza party that 1,200 people came to. And um, what was fun was the overarching framework was set in motion by one of the collaborators. He said, can you do this? And we said yes. And then we had to find the right team to say, all right, how do we cut Manhattan up into zip codes and then figure out how many pizza places are in each zip code that aren't duplicates. So, you know, I'm not going to go to every Domino's and right. every Papa Gina's. So we can, we're able to filter down some of those and be like, all right, great. So this zip code's got 22 pizzerias. How many people do we need to order pizzas and then collect them to a vantage point so that a van could pick them up? How many vans do we need going around the city? Right. What's the volumetric space that those pizzas take up? Exactly. And then at the end of the day, how many people do we need to eat all these pizzas? Um, where can we throw this party? And how can we make it more interesting than just being, watching vans show up with hundreds of pizzas in them? Um, and hopefully we accomplish that. And again, it, you know, we were able to reach out to Reggie Watts and have him help with the music. And we were able to reach out to this guy named Thierry Bendison. Um, and Thierry helped us do some sculptural pieces. And, you know, you know, and Ronan made a video. And again, like it was a synergy of all of these pieces, all of these different creative voices and our foundation of, yes, we can actually accomplish this. Then allowed everybody to go and make their own specific art or creative voice really come through in, in fruition. And it only took six days. Uh, that actually took uh, 48 hours from wow. when they said yes to when we were ha we, where we had to do it. <laughs> and again, that that's, you know, that's part of the fun. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, the other, other parts of the fun is kind of, uh, you know, trying to imagine a longer play idea, something that's going to take months or years to come together and then figuring out who the right people are to turn that seed of an idea into, uh, into a forest. And, and like we, we try to imagine our process as being, uh, sometimes, you know, we say we want to do X and then we find the right people. And sometimes in finding right people, they say, I've always wanted to do Y, uh, or Z, but I had no idea it was possible, but now I see you're able to do these other bits that are out of my purview. How can we collaborate and let me focus on my passion and you do the rest of the stuff that needs to happen on this thing? 
Yeah, the, uh, the, the, Manhattan, the Manhattan pizza event reminds me of something I remember years ago. I don't know if anybody's done it. I feel like I, I read about it 15 years ago maybe, where a couple of people decided to see if they could ride the entirety of the New York City subway system on one fare. Yeah. And they did it. It took like 70 hours or something. I mean, it just took forever because you had to ride to certain, certain lines. You had to ride to the end and then ride back, and you had to figure out where you could transfer, where you couldn't transfer. Um, it may have been before the days of, like, the exterior metro card transfer, so it was even more complicated. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. And again, like, I, I think New York City is really an interesting place because it's like an ideas factory. There's a lot of ideas that are coming out here. Um, it's it's very difficult even in the with the, you know, the growth of Brooklyn and the outer boroughs and Queens and the Harlem and the Bronx and even Jersey City as cultural hubs themselves. It's just very hard to take those good ideas and actually grow them into trees here. So, you know, we've always looked internationally uh, for collaborators and inspiration because something that is a good idea that we came up with through collaboration and, and thought leadership here in the city through bumping into people and you know, being at Roberta's and having conversations at the dog park and all that kind of stuff, it might not be able to grow here. It might not have enough space. It might be perfect for, uh, you know, Bogota and Colombia or, um, you know, uh, Paris or even a smaller place. Um, off the map, Washington, D.C., Akron, Ohio, um, you know, Vancouver, however you slice these things up, it's about trying to take those ideas and then finding the right team and making them into the actual thing. Because for me, the biggest, the biggest passion here is making stuff and not just consuming stuff. And my whole passion for cooking and for kind of these creative voice, voice projects came around the idea that uh, I used to cook all the time when I was younger. Um, and I used to do it socially with my family. Um, and then when I m went to university, that became harder. And then when I moved to New York, I felt like a real lacking of that. So when we met, you know, I would invite you over to my house to cook dinner. It was a process of making a thing, not just consuming the thing. And, you know, I firmly believe that, you know, making stuff is like a, is truly a gateway drug. If you can make dinner with each other, then you can probably make something more interesting because, you know, you have uh, all the different bits of a, a project. You know, you have you have to pick the recipe, you have to get the ingredients, you have to succeed as a group, you can fail as a group, succeed as an individual, fail as an individual. There's education, there's learning, there's all that kind of stuff. And um, if you can do it for, for a meal, which is cheap and fast, and maybe we can work on building a piece of theater or a, or a video or something. Does everything that a razor or a shiny knife does relate to food and beverage in some way? Um, no, not always. I say that, uh, you know, I like creating adventure, which means that I like making people uncomfortable. Um, so food and beverage is a great way of uh, rewarding somebody for letting themselves become uncomfortable. Um, and if you don't really have any discomfort in your life, you don't really have adventure. You don't have the overcoming of that discomfort and the understanding that there is something that you didn't anticipate. So, like, we, we did a dinner party where we paired uh, acupuncture and massage therapy with a multi-course meal with cocktails and wine, um, and the food was decadent. Um, it was healthy, but it wasn't designed to be, you know, green drinks and, you know, wheatgrass smoothies and stuff like that. Uh, we had steak. We had truffles. Um, and people would show up, and they were like, I didn't know that there was going to be acupuncture. I've never had acupuncture before. And I'm like, well, what better chance to do it? This guy is a 25-year veteran of acupuncture. Um, I'm really good at cooking food. If you don't like the acupuncture, you're immediately going to get a drink. He's like, oh, cool. Right. Yeah. If I'm nervous afterwards, I can immediately get a cocktail. And that process allowed him to take a step in that direction of discomfort and then feel like a bigger person at the end of the day. Like he figured he accomplished something for himself, even though it was just getting what we all could consider a luxury, you know, bot body service or whatever that is. You know what sure, I mean? Like, it, sure. but it was still it was still a discomfort for him. So, you know, then he got the reward of the food and beverage. I mean, I wonder if there's a, a an aspect to that specific story that 
the the person performing the acupuncture also is probably a little bit out of their element, right? I mean, you think of acupuncture as being, to me anyway, I think of it as being in like, you know, a place that might have like soft lighting mm-hmm. and might have, uh, you know, sort of uh, more like a massage yep. kind of spa scenario. Yeah. Um, you we, know, rather than like while you're eating a steak. Well, we in a we, restaurant setting. It was definitely not a restaurant setting. That that thing is definitely more like a spa feeling where there's moments where you're eating and moments where you're in quiet decadence. But the team that we chose, the massage therapists and the acupuncturists, uh, they were really excited about this. And we spent six months working on the recipes to tie to the treatments to know which types of treatments would be most valuable. Um, and I'm not going to say it was magical or like it's something. I mean, the acupuncture has been around for thousands of years. We spent six months working on this. So it was, it was a very enjoyable, decadent experience that allowed people to relax and to be calm and to be present, so to speak. Um, but uh, it's definitely a fun thing. And it definitely pushed those practitioners who are very used to doing acupuncture, you know, traveling around the city, carrying around a table with needles and showing up to your apartment or to your office. It gave them the ability to do all the things that no one asks them to do, to think about their craft and their their skills in uh, in a different way that was a little bit unique and, and outside of the box. So there was a little discomfort for the client side and a little discomfort on their side. Hopefully all all of us from a creation and a consumption side went through a, an adventure together. So it's clear to me that uh, adventure and challenge is something that you uh, sort of uh, it's a big part of you. It's a big part of what you do. You you mentioned to me earlier that the first thing that you uh, learned to cook by yourself was eggs Benedict, yeah. like all the way through with Hollandaise. Yeah. Um, I want to I want to ask a little bit more about how old were you? I was like eight, I think, or nine. And uh, and why eggs Benedict with Hollandaise? I assume you chose that. That's no, the... it was my it was my mother's favorite. So, um, you, you know, we had a lot of. You know, I'm I'm 37, so I grew up in the 80s with the Encyclopedia Britannica and like color cookbooks and like time life things, and I was very used to seeing these saturated images of things, whether it be uh, spaceships and stuff from those like compendiums that were put out around then, or the airplanes, or or all of the the stuff in the Encyclopedia Britannica and all that. And my mother had a couple very high color saturated like cookbooks, and I couldn't tell you what they were, but they definitely were not the joy of cooking. She had that, but that wasn't the thing that a eight year old would be draw attention to. And after a couple times of going out to breakfast and learning that she liked this thing, you know, I saw a picture of it in one of the things, and it was uh, it was a connection. I oh, my mother likes this. This is a thing. Here's ingredients. This is a step by step thing. I can build a model airplane that has a set of, set of rules. I've put together, you know, other stuff. You know, like I, I this is just a process. I have to learn and let me decipher this way of them providing me with the steps and requirements to do this. And I couldn't tell you if it was good. My mother might be able to, but I, I'm sure she probably, <laughs> you know, shines it into a much shinier diamond than it actually was, you know, who, who maybe it was just chunky and gross, or maybe I, I got it as close as possible. And there was a whole bunch of people helping me. So I felt like I did it, but, uh, the adventure was really awesome. I yeah. felt, it felt really good trying to do that, you know? Um, and she, she encouraged me. So that was also pretty rad. And did you, I mean, was that a singular event or did you go on from there to explore those cookbooks and to sort of expand into other recipes? You know, I wasn't always, uh, as focused on cooking, um, because it was such a casual part of our life. Um, you know, there was a lot of times where I would cook, but there wasn't a cookbook involved. So like Sundays with my grandmother, uh, holidays with my, the other, with my other grandmother, um, there were specific things we had to do, um, but there wasn't recipes and things like that. So I was always in a kitchen chopping vegetables, stirring sauces, putting pasta together, doing that type of stuff, um, and enjoying it and being there next to my parents or my grandparents or, or my relatives. 
Um, it wasn't really until uh, probably right after college when I, I, you know, I worked at restaurants when I was in the university, and uh, I kind of loved the idea of service, uh, and I loved the idea of being uh, an amazing bartender and sommelier so that I could make more money. Um, and then I realized that I also had to learn a lot about food. So from a service side, I learned a ton about fine dining and high-end cuisine and local food and all that stuff right before that stuff really became big. So that really kind of influenced what I was cooking. And when I moved back to New York after I, I graduated from Northeastern, I kind of just stru- I had like a, a goal of having that be involved in my life more, even though I wasn't working in the service industry anymore. So you mentioned growing up in the 80s. I, I also grew up in the 80s. And one of the things that I, I think a lot about is that sort of like the aesthetic you're talking about, about the cookbooks. And, you know, we have a huge collection of cookbooks ranging from, you know, I have 19th century cookbooks all the way to modern and sort of looking at, at the changes there and thinking about how food has changed. And now, of course, you know, I have children, you have a daughter, you know, thinking about what is what is their perception going to be of what our cooking is now, yeah. right? Because I look back on, I look back in the 80s with my parents and my, you know, my we, we used to cook all the time and, um, but there were sort of like this canon of recipes yep. that were always around and there were certain ingredients. Um, I know I've mentioned it on this show before and I talk about it a lot, but, you know, margarine was like a huge thing in my household. We didn't have butter ever. Kosher? No, it was just, it had to do with the, the sort of like the theoretical idea that butter was bad for you and margarine was good right, for you. Right, okay. Um, yeah. You know, and so we always had margarine in the house, which now I look back on and I would never have margarine in the house now, but I'm sort of curious to know, like, you know, in 30 years, is my daughter going to be like, oh God, you know, dad always had olive oil around and used it in everything. You know, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> I mean, I don't think she could possibly say that. I think we're probably the outliers in that conversation. I'm sure there's other people probably. here that are like, my parents always had Trader Joe's chicken enchiladas, which evidently is. <laughs> like mana from heaven for people but i mean i don't know it's just like there 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 are probably other things but i would say the the, the same bit with the canon for my family that we probably had 10 or 12 recipes yeah. that they cooked from and that was that was the bit of it um i will say though that i hope that by the time my daughter is buying cookbooks or using uh, all recipes or whatever she goes to um it's all in weight and it's hope, yeah. hopefully also in the metric system because doing recipes by volume is not only the stupidest thing that I could possibly imagine. It's just like asking for things not to be done well. It's just like how, how do we purposefully make the job of this recipe, which is to convey information in a precise way, completely unprecise and inaccurate in the, the most fundamental, like right from the beginning. Like how do we start with both of our hands tied behind our back and then go from there. Well, I mean, what if we just go the other direction completely, right? I mean, my mom talks about following her grandmother around the kitchen while she was baking, who didn't use recipes at all, and trying to get her to stop and be like, wait, grandma, let me let me measure or weigh that flour before you put it in the bowl so I can like write down the recipe for how to make it. Right. Um, and, you know, she and, and my aunt did that, and then the recipe still never turned out the same. Right. But grandma could do it every time exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, again, that really comes to uh, what you want to spend your time being great at. And, uh, you know, I I, I learned very early on that there was an upper limit to my culinary skills because I never wanted to work in a restaurant uh, behind the line. Um, It is uh, a very difficult job um, physically, emotionally, uh, socially as well. Um, It is a very uh, precise job and it requires consistency over time. Most of those things I do not have. So, um, and I, and I, I respect it very much. People who do cook in restaurants have an enormous amount of admiration. I, I have an enormous amount of admiration for them. Um, but because of that, I recognize that my knife skills, you know, just if you think about breaking down a chicken, right. You know, I consider myself pretty good with a knife, uh, 
you know, I used to teach knife skills classes and all that stuff. But uh, every Sunday, I would buy a duck and a chicken, break them down into different pieces in different ways, whether it be a French style or a trussing or, you know, however to practice. Um, and then I know that when my friend Daniel showed up and I knew that Daniel had chicken on the menu at the restaurant that he worked at, he would have to break down 30 chickens that day. So in the course of a year, I could barely get up to the place of what he did in a week from a prep side. So like mathematically, I was never going to get that talented. You know, right. I can do all the Japanese uh, garnishes and stuff like that, but am I ever going to do them as well as a guy that unpeels a carrot every single day when he shows up? Every single day, he does one of the yeah. hardest knife skill things in the world. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 a thing to understand. I would have loved to have met your grandma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then and then, yeah, my grandma and my my great grandma. She was the uh, the one who could measure with measure their hands. My grandmother could do it too. I, I remember watching her do it. And uh, I don't know, you know, there's there are these skills I feel like that previous generations sort of end up with. I mean, my mother, I don't know how. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's a skill or whatever it is, but she could take cookie sheets out of the oven with her bare hands. That's crazy. I mean, I like, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, she couldn't stick her hand in a fire. I don't think she could walk on coals, you know. But like, she, I remember her, you know, didn't bother her at all. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's everybody's got superpowers. Mine is I can find parking almost anywhere. Nice. That's, yeah. that's very useful in the city. It's outrageous. Um, we're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors. And when we come back, um, I want to talk about cannabis. Great. Itoen, the leading green tea company and makers of Oi Ocha, Japan's number one selling green tea, offers an array of award-winning ready-to-drink teas, premium tea leaves, tea bags, and antioxidant matcha powder. From the refreshing taste of tea's tea, brewed with only the purest of teas, to matcha love taking a modern take on an ancient ritual, Itoen celebrates the authentic tastes of Japan with their 50-plus years of tea-making expertise. For a natural energy boost, try Sencha Shot, packed with healthy catechins and vitamin C. Do visit the Matcha Love Store in the Mitsua Marketplace located in Edgewater, New Jersey for their signature matcha ice cream and shakes. Hoji and black sesame are also a must. With a selection of delicious teas, teaware, and gift sets, Matcha Love by Itoen is not to be missed. For more information, visit itoen.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, and today I'm talking with Michael Chirino from Eraser, A Shiny Knife. Um, we were talking before the break about cooking with families and sort of what Eraser, A Shiny Knife does, and um, I want to talk a little bit about something that is a little more, uh, something you, I know, have been doing for a long time, but something that is kind of a little more recent in putting it out there. Um, as I think everybody's aware, cannabis, um, and, you know, it's not news, right? It's been around for a really long time, but the you know it it has in you know in the last decade become far less um, 
I guess, socially unacceptable uh, in this country. Yes. Um, it has gotten, uh, it's become legal um, in a couple of places to just walk around with a joint, to go buy it, um, anybody who wants some, just like you can go to a liquor store and buy alcohol. And in many, many more states than that, um, you know, it's now legal to get it if you have a medical card, which in some cases, I mean, you know, I have friends who live in New York who have medical cards in California. And every time they are in San Francisco or LA for business, they FedEx themselves a package full of weed. <laughs> Doesn't sound legal, but it does sound like uh, an interesting evolution towards the normalization of this, this ingredient uh, as a vice in our society. Um, I think one of the things that we take for granted as societies is that we're very vice driven. Um, uh, 88% of Americans drink coffee every single day or consume caffeine, I should say, in the form of coffee or tea. I mean, something like 15% or maybe more than that of toddlers in Boston drink coffee every day. I mean, that's outrageous. <laughs> um, I mean, and, and if you think about it, like just imagine how upset the British crown was when coffee started showing up in England, because all the coffee shops, this was the first stimulant that the, the Western world had. Um, this is the first time people got together and instead of getting drunk and getting lethargic and then fighting each other actually would spur on conversation and talk about how things could change and what they could do about stuff and then do stuff so you had a very you know resistant bit to coffee at the beginning as well as a drug not as a uh, delicious drink called espresso or macchiato or ristretto or whatever the fuck you want to call it um the bit though for me is when i look at cannabis um, cannabis has been demonized because of a lot of weird race relations inside the U.S. government, um, and then that was taken on a global scale, and that's caused a lot of hardship. And as that starts to be kind of worked back and how we start to get to more even-keeled situation where um, it is accepted, it needs to have better rituals. Um, the ritual of smoking is obviously the thing that happens all the time, but it is a dirty ritual. Smoking is something that I think all of us have agreed is not the best way of consuming any drug or any product, you know. So my goal over the last couple of years was to figure out in an elegant space, in a refined society, how do we have a comparison between cannabis and coffee um, and then allow THC and uh, caffeine to be at, at a different level. So instead of having plants that were grown to intoxicate us like alcohol, um, to have such a heavy dosage, how do we scale it back and have it be focused on flavor? How do we create create consumption methods that were more akin to the you know the voice around different espresso drinks, where there's an espresso, a macchiato, a cortado, a cappuccino, a latte, a flat white? All of these different things are ways that we know how to dose ourselves with caffeine in a delicious and unique way that you can seek out. Oh, this place makes really good pour overs. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out of my way to have that you know Ethiopian whatever you know, and that's all part of that drug, that ritual, that plant. And I think cannabis should have that too, you know, and I've been looking to try to figure out how to incorporate it into our culinary space, into our beverage space. I mean, I think it's, I think that the, the time is, the time is certainly right. Um, and I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of value there. I think that, um, you know, the, the comparison that uh, I've seen you make or heard you make about coffee would be one of, you know, if you just drank like 12 cups of coffee right in a row, you'd be like off your rocker, like yeah. freaked out. And like, you know, the similar thing is true. If you smoke a big fat joint, you're going to be just on the fucking floor. Right. And that is the way that's one of the ways that cannabis tends to be consumed now. I mean, is I would, you consume it at night, you consume it in a space with people to get fucked up. Yeah. And I would even say that, um, people who can smoke an entire joint of cannabis are the outliers. Right. Um, you know, like I started drinking coffee three years ago or, uh, and, I tried drinking an espresso and then I tried drinking a second espresso and then I would 
feel like I was going to die. And then I tried drinking uh, like one of those, just for the fun of it, I had a cookie dough flavored culotta frosty <laughs> mochaccino thing from Dunkin' Donuts because I was like, this is a thing. People buy these things, right? Sure. And it's disgusting, but it also drove me nuts because it was 30 ounces or something. And I was like, oh my and God, how do people... Pack full of sugar. Yeah. How do people drink three of these a day? Um, I'm not capable of having more than one cup of coffee a day. I know that now. Um, I know people that can't handle one puff on a joint because their bodies are not meant for that. You know, uh, I know other people that can handle... Here, to give you an example, one puff on a joint is roughly one and a half to two milligrams of THC. Um, there are cookies that are sold in California that are considered one to two doses that are 200 milligrams of THC. So there, there is a, um, an exponential scale on which humans can absorb this, this active ingredient. And it is unfair for the uh, strong user to imagine that that is the only way to consume this project product. Um, the only way to have that ingredient integrated is at that highest level. Um, I, I think that by lowering the dosage, by creating a, an easier way for people to practice with it and see what it is that doesn't allow for such an easy overdose, you can have more experimentation and then eventually more casual usage instead of just in the sense of intoxication. Like we're going to get done with this interview, have a piece of pizza and a beer. Nobody's going to imagine that we're going to get hammered from that beer. Right. How do we have that same kind of experience with cannabis? If I decide I don't want to drink a poison, which, let's be honest, alcohol is l literally a poison. Um, Delicious so, poison. It is. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, so, I mean, to, to that end, um, I know that you have started teaching classes in cannabis cooking. Um, we have one tonight, yep. in fact, at the Brooklyn Kitchen. Um, and then the following one is on June 15th. Correct. Um, and I think that, you know, I think we're, we exist in a very interesting space just to make sure everybody's aware we will not be, you know, we're not going to have like a pound of weed on the table no, at the Brooklyn a, Kitchen tonight. A pound of oregano, though. Yeah. Um, and uh, so can you talk a little bit, Michael, about what, what happens in the class? Like, what do, you, what do you talk about and how do you see people both in a professional culinary setting but also at home? Um, how, you know, how are we able to change the way cannabis is consumed so that it's not something where we're, like, hiding in the corner, um, you know, smoking a joint? How do we incorporate it into our day? The, the, the easiest thing that I imagine for people is making an alcohol extract. Uh, people call it a tincture. Um, once you start putting flavors into it, it can be an extract or a bitters, whether it's sweetened or bitter. Um, I find that cannabis does a really good job of doing that process, using high, grain, uh, high proof alcohol to take out the active ingredients. Um, so I go through that process, how to do that, uh, why you have to roast the plant to turn the active ingredients on, how, the, how you do the extraction and the filtering, um, and then how you understand what the dosage levels are. Um, cannabis is one of those things in that regard, uh, whether you put it into a, a fat, an oil, a butter, um, you should probably not cook with it uh, or the, the alcohol tincture. You should probably not mix butter into brownie mix and then imagine that it's going to be uniformly distributed across the whole batter and that each brownie is going to be equally strong. That's, that's, that's a part of the recipe for disaster. So a lot of what I do is I create moments where you can then add it as a finishing ingredient to your specifications. So if you and I were eating and you like to have 10 milligrams and I like to have one milligram, I can give you a pat of butter on your steak or in your pasta or, you know, however it is that is commiserate with the amount of THC you would like to have instead of assuming that you and I want to have the same serving and that we would be able to get it through that very uh, rough process. I mean, I think that that's, that is ultimately the, the biggest, um, 
think it's the biggest hurdle to overcome um, in all of this is the dosing. You know, everybody understands essentially, even though, sure, there's variation in how much caffeine is in a cup of coffee. Everybody has a clear understanding of like a cup of coffee is going to do X to me. Exactly. Um, and, you know, you order a beer and based on size, if that's what you want, you order a glass of wine, you order a mixed drink. You don't just say, give me a glass of alcohol mm -hmm. and then let the bartender decide whether it's full of beer or whether it's full of, you know, vodka. You got it. Um, and so that I think is really is really where we're going um and i i encourage everybody to kind of um to get on board with this and try it out if if cannabis is something that you're interested in um i think that there is a lot to be gained in much much smaller dosage i think so as well and i think this is another elegant uh this is another complicated problem that needs an elegant solution and I, that's kind of my my passion is this is going to take a lot of people collaborating farmers chefs um mixologists coffee people um, cannabis growers, uh, cannabis like, aficionados, however you want to call that. Um, but we're going to have to build new rituals and new interactions with the product. Um, it's not going to be done by myself, and it's not going to be done immediately. It's going to take 10 years. Um, but hopefully in 10 or 15 years, we can have a, a reasonable way of approaching this, this plant. Um, you know, in the same way that we look at coffee, you know, we can have a cup of coffee and then go to work. Um, and then if we have a, a migraine or we're having an asthma attack, we can take medicinal caffeine. You know, if you need the me medicine, great. Um, but if you want to have a more casual experience, hopefully that'll be there and hopefully it'll be elegant enough for uh, us to enjoy it uh, in our retirement. Do you have a uh, do you have a favorite um, way to consume cannabis or a favorite type um strain i mean you I, know, they I, all have really weird names i feel like yeah I, I i i recommend roasting um a, a sativa uh if you can get that uh, it's a little a uh, little bit more of a, a head high as they call it because the the ratio of thc to cbd is a little out of whack um and that will not be as lethargic uh for you i i roast it a little heavier than 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 usual about six to eight minutes at 325 degrees um, and then I process that in an alcohol solution that's as high proof as you can make it. And that darker roast works very well in a cup of coffee. So I would heat up a cup of coffee, put an eyedropper of that extract on the bottom, and then pour the coffee over it, and it boils off the alcohol, emulsifies in with the coffee fat, and doesn't get me stoned, but it kind of peps me up in the caffeine and allows my brain to focus a little bit or allows me to relax if I'm going for a walk or playing with my dog or something, gardening. Something to try. Yeah. Um, great. Well, I, you know, I think we're, we're right at the, right at the cusp um, <laughs> of that, of that uh, sort of changing in the world. Um, we're pretty much at the end uh, of the show today, but I wanted to make sure you have an opportunity. Do you have any, any projects coming up um, that you want folks to know about? Any, any events? Well, so we, you know, uh, the Brooklyn Kitchen and a Razor Shiny Knife are going to be doing a series of cannabis cooking classes throughout the summer. Um, so either come to or the Brooklyn Kitchen's website or Razor Shiny Knife to get more information about the experiences and the educational things that we're doing in that, that regard. If you want recipes, feel free to check out our Facebook page, uh, which is just Facebook slash Razor Shiny Knife. Um, over the next couple months, we're going to be launching a lot more videos, uh, interactive things, um, for a series of very large experiences this fall. Uh, our, our real passion is making entertainment. So hopefully our goal is after years of making entertainment for ourselves and occasionally giving access to our fan base, um, because, you know, we have to work for large clients or organizations or charities, you know, um, because that's how we have patronage. Uh, our goal is now is to start to look back towards that large fan base, those people that have been following us in our stories, and start giving them multimedia ways of enjoying our inspiration and trying to figure out ways that we can collaborate um, that build towards these larger social interactions so that 
the collaboration starts with the creation of the project, and then we can start giving uh, more scalable experiences to our our fans and the people that are following us. So hopefully that'll be by uh, September or October if everything goes well. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer, and David Tattashore, who engineers this show every week. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes, and you can follow me on social media at The Foodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.